Chapter Seven of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven: Germans Sacking the Banks. Day dawned dismally and wet on September the twenty-first. Over London the sky was still obscured by the smoke pall, though as the night passed many of the raging fires had spent themselves. Trafalgar Square was filled with troops who had piled arms and were standing at their ease. The men were laughing and smoking, enjoying a rest after the last forward movement and the street-fighting of that night of horrors. The losses on both sides during the past three days had been enormous. Of the number of London citizens killed and wounded, it was impossible to calculate. There had, in the northern suburbs, been wholesale butchery everywhere, so gallantly had the barricades been defended. Great camps had now been formed in Hyde Park, in the Green Park between Constitution Hill and Piccadilly, and in St. James's Park. The Magdeburg Fusiliers were being formed up on the House Guards Parade, and from the flagstaff there now fluttered the ensign of the commander of an army corps in place of the British flag. A large number of Uhlans and Coursiers were encamped at the west end of the park, opposite Buckingham Palace, and both the Wellington Barracks and the Cavalry Barracks at Knightsbridge were occupied by Germans. Many officers were already billeted in the Savoy, the Cecil, the Carlton, the Grand and Victoria Hotels, while the British Museum, the National Gallery, the South Kensington Museum, the Tower, and a number of other collections of pictures and antiques were all guarded strongly by German sentries. The enemy had thus seized our national treasures. London awoke to find herself a German city. In the streets lounging groups of travel-worn sons of the fatherland were everywhere, and German was heard on every hand. Every ounce of foodstuff was being rapidly commandeered by hundreds of foraging parties who went to each grocer's, baker's, or provision shop in the various districts, seized all they could find, valued it, and gave official receipts for it. The price of food in London that morning was absolutely prohibitive, as much as two shillings being asked for a two-penny loaf. The Germans had, it was afterwards discovered, been all the time since the Sunday when they landed, running over large cargoes of supplies of all sorts to the Essex, Lincolnshire and Norfolk coast, where they had established huge supply bases, well knowing that there was not sufficient food in the country to feed their armed hordes in addition to the population. Shops in Tottenham Court Road, Holborn, Edgware Road, Oxford Street, Camden Road and Harrow Road were systematically visited by the foraging parties who commenced their work at dawn. Those places that were closed and their owners absent were at once broken open, and everything seized and cartered to either Hyde Park or St. James's Park, for though Londoners might starve, the Kaiser's troops intended to be fed. In some cases a patriotic shopkeeper attempted to resist. Indeed, in more than one case a tradesman willfully set his shop on fire rather than its contents should fall into the enemy's hands. In other cases, the tradesmen who received the official German receipts burned them in contempt before the officer's eyes. The guidance of these foraging parties was, in very many cases, 
in the hands of Germans in civilian clothes, and it was now seen how complete and helpful the enemy's system of espionage had been in London. Most of these men were Germans who, having served in the army, had come over to England and obtained employment as waiters, clerks, bakers, hairdressers, and private servants, and, being bound by their oath to the fatherland, had served their country as spies. Each man, when obeying the imperial command to join the German arms, had placed in the lapel of his coat a button of a peculiar shape, with which he had long ago been provided, and by which he was instantly recognized as a loyal subject of the Kaiser. This huge body of German soldiers, who for years had passed in England as civilians, was, of course, of enormous use to von Kronhelm, for they acted as guides not only on the march and during the entry to London, but materially assisted in the victorious advance in the Midlands. Indeed, the Germans had for years kept a civilian army in England, and yet we had, ostrich-like, buried our heads in the sand and refused to turn our eyes to the grave peril that had for so long threatened. Systematically the Germans were visiting every shop and warehouse in the shopping districts and seizing everything edible they could discover. The enemy were taking the food from the mouths of the poor in East and South London, and as they went southward across the river, so the populace retired, leaving their homes at the mercy of the ruthless invader. Upon all the bridges across the Thames stood German guards, and none were allowed to cross without permits. Soon after dawn von Kronhelm and his staff rode down Haverstock Hill with a large body of cavalry, and made his formal entry into London, first having an interview with the Lord Mayor, and an hour afterwards establishing his headquarters at the new war office in Whitehall, over which he hoisted his special flag as commander-in-chief. It was found that, though a good deal of damage had been done externally to the building, the interior had practically escaped save one or two rooms. Therefore the field marshal installed himself in the private room of the war minister, and telegraphic and telephonic communication was quickly established, while a wireless telegraph apparatus was placed upon the ruined summit of Big Ben for the purpose of communicating with Germany in case the cables were interrupted by being cut at sea. The day after the landing a similar apparatus had been erected on the monument at Yarmouth, and it had been daily in communication with the one at Bremen. The German left nothing to chance. The clubs in Pall Mall were now being used by German officers who lounged in easy chairs, smoking and taking their ease, German soldiers being on guard outside. North of the Thames seemed practically deserted, save for the invaders who swarmed everywhere. South of the Thames the cowed and terrified populace were asking what the end was to be. What was the government doing? It had fled to Bristol and left London to its fate, they complained. What the German demands were was not known until the Daily Telegraph published an interview with Sir Claude Harrison, the Lord Mayor, which gave authentic details of them. They were as follows. 1. Indemnity of three hundred million pounds paid in ten annual installments. 2. Until this indemnity is paid in full, German troops to occupy Edinburgh, Rosyth, Chatham, Dover, Portsmouth, Devonport, Pembroke, Yarmouth, Hull. 3. 
cession to Germany of the Shetlands, Orkneys, Bantry Bay, Malta, Gibraltar, and Tasmania. 4. India, north of a line drawn from Calcutta to Baroda, to be ceded to Russia. 5. The independence of Ireland, to be recognized. Of the claim of three hundred million pounds, fifty millions was demanded from London, the sum in question to be paid within twelve hours. The Lord Mayor had, it appeared, sent his secretary to the Prime Minister at Bristol bearing the original document in the handwriting of von Kronhelm. The Prime Minister had acknowledged its receipt by telegraph both to the Lord Mayor and to the German Field Marshal, but there the matter had ended. The twelve hours' grace was nearly up, and the German commander, seated in Whitehall, had received no reply. In the corner of the large, pleasant, well-carpeted room sat a German telegraph engineer with a portable instrument in direct communication with the Emperor's private cabinet Potsdam, and over that wire messages were continually passing and repassing. The grizzled old soldier paced the room impatiently. His Emperor had only an hour ago sent him a message of warm congratulation, and had privately informed him of the high honours he intended to bestow upon him. The German eagle was victorious, and London, the great unconquerable London, lay crushed, torn, and broken. The marble clock upon the mantelpiece shelf chimed eleven upon its silvery bells, causing von Kronhelm to turn from the window to glance at his own watch. "'Tell His Majesty it is eleven o'clock, and that there is no reply to hand, he said sharply in German to the man in uniform seated at the table in the corner. The instrument clicked rapidly, and a silence followed. The German commander waited anxiously. He stood bending slightly over the green tape in order to read the imperial order the instant it flashed from beneath the sea. Five minutes, ten minutes passed. The shouting of military commands in German came up from Whitehall below nothing else broke the quiet. Von Kronhelm, his face more furrowed and more serious, again paced the carpet. Suddenly the little instrument whirred and clicked as its thin green tape rolled out. In an instant the generalissimo of the Kaiser's army sprang to the telegraphist's side and read the imperial command. For a moment he held the piece of tape between his fingers, then crushed it in his hand and stood motionless. He had received orders which, though against his desire, he was compelled to obey. Summoning several members of his staff who had installed themselves in other comfortable rooms in the vicinity, he held a long consultation with them. In the meantime, telegraphic dispatches were received from Sheffield, Manchester, Birmingham, and other German headquarters, all telling the same story. The complete investment and occupation of the big cities and the pacification of the inhabitants. One hour's grace was, however, allowed to London till noon. Then orders were issued, bugles rang out across the parks, and in the main thoroughfares where arms were piled, causing the troops to fall in, and within a quarter of an hour large bodies of infantry and engineers were moving along the strand in the direction of the city. At first the reason of all this was a mystery but very shortly it was realized what was intended when a detachment of the 5th Hanover Regiment advanced to the gate of the Bank of England opposite the exchange, and, after some difficulty, broke it open and entered, 
followed by some engineers of von Mirbach's division. The building was very soon occupied, and, under the direction of General von Kleppet himself, an attempt was made to open the strong rooms wherein was stored that vast hoard of England's wealth. What actually occurred at that spot can only be imagined, as the commander of the Fourth Army Corps and one or two officers and men were the only persons present. It is surmised, however, that the strength of the vaults was far greater than they had imagined, and that, though they worked for hours, all was in vain. While this was in progress, however, parties of engineers were making organized raids upon the banks in Lombard Street, Lothbury, Moorgate Street, and Broad Street, as well upon branch banks in Oxford Street, the Strand, and other places in the West End. At one bank on the left-hand side of Lombard Street, dynamite being used to force the strong room, the first bullion was seized, while at nearly all the banks sooner or later the vaults were opened, and great bags and boxes of gold coin were taken out and conveyed in carefully guarded carts to the Bank of England, now in the possession of Germany. In some banks, those of more modern construction, the greatest resistance was offered by the huge steel doors and concrete and steel walls and other devices for security. But nothing could, alas, resist the high explosives used, and in the end breaches were made, in all cases, and wealth uncounted and untold extracted and conveyed to Threadneedle Street for safekeeping. Engineers and infantry handled those heavy boxes and those big bundles of securities gleefully, officers carefully counting each box or bag or packet as it was taken out to be carted or carried away by hand. German soldiers under guard struggled along Lothbury beneath great burdens of gold and carts requisitioned out of the east and rumbled heavily all the afternoon, escorted by soldiers. Hammersmith, Camberwell, Hampstead, and Willesden yielded up their quota of the great wealth of London. But though soon after four o'clock a breach was made in the strong rooms of the Bank of England by means of explosives, nothing in the vaults was touched. The Germans simply entered there and formally took possession. The coin collected from other banks was carefully kept, each separate from another, and placed in various rooms under strong guards, for it seemed to be their intention simply to hold London's wealth as security. That afternoon very few banks, except the German ones, escaped notice. Of course there were a few small branches in the suburbs which remained unvisited, yet by six o'clock von Kronhelm was in possession of enormous quantities of gold. In one or two quarters there had been opposition on the part of the armed guards established by the banks at the first news of the invasion. But any such resistance had, of course, been futile, and the man who had dared to fire upon the German soldiers had in every case been shot down. Thus when darkness fell, von Kronhelm, from the corner of his room in the war office, was able to report to his imperial majesty that not only had he occupied london but that receiving no reply to his demand for indemnity he had sacked it and taken possession not only of the bank of england but of the cash deposits in most of the other banks in the metropolis that night the evening papers described the wild happenings of the afternoon and london saw herself not only shattered but ruined the frightened populace across the river stood breathless. What was now to happen? Though London lay crushed and occupied by the enemy, 
though the Lord Mayor was a prisoner of war and the banks in the hands of the Germans, though the metropolis had been wrecked and more than half its inhabitants had fled southward and westward into the country, yet the enemy received no reply to their demand for an indemnity and the cession of British territory. Von Kronhelm, ignorant of what had happened in the House of Commons at Bristol, sat in Whitehall and wondered. He knew well that the English were no fools, and their silence therefore caused him considerable uneasiness. He had lost in the various engagements over fifty thousand men, yet nearly two hundred thousand still remained. His army of invasion was a no mean responsibility, especially when at any moment the British might regain command of the sea. His supplies and reinforcements would then be at once cut off. It was impossible for him to live upon the country, and his food bases in Suffolk and Essex were not sufficiently extensive to enable him to make a prolonged campaign. Indeed, the whole scheme of operations which had been so long discussed and perfected in secret in Berlin was more of the nature of a raid than a prolonged siege. City of London Citizens of London We, the general commanding the German Imperial Army, occupying London, give notice that. 1. The state of war and siege continues to exist, and all categories of crime, more especially the contravention of all orders already issued, will be judged by councils of war and punished in conformity with martial law. 2. The inhabitants of London and its suburbs are ordered to instantly deliver up all arms and ammunition of whatever kind they possess. The term arms includes firearms, sabres, swords, daggers, revolvers, and sword canes. Landlords and occupiers of the houses are charged to see that this order is carried out, but in the case of their absence the municipal authorities and officials of the London County Council are charged to make domiciliary visits, minute and searching being accompanied by a military guard. 3. All newspapers, journals, gazettes, and proclamations, of whatever description, are hereby prohibited, and until further notice nothing further must be printed except documents issued publicly by the military commander. 4. Any private person or persons taking arms against the German troops after this notice will be executed. 5. On the contrary, the Imperial German troops will respect private property and no requisition will be allowed to be made unless it bears the authorization of the commander-in-chief. 6. All public places are to be closed at 8 p.m. All persons found in the streets of London after 8 p.m. will be arrested by the patrols. There is no exception to this rule except in the case of German officers and also in the case of doctors visiting their patients. Municipal officials will also be allowed out providing they obtain a permit from the German headquarters. 7. Municipal authorities must provide for the lighting of the streets. In cases where this is impossible, each householder must hang a lantern outside his house from nightfall until 8 a.m. 8. After tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, the women and children of the populace of London will be allowed to pass without hindrance. 9. Municipal authorities must with as little delay as possible, provide accommodation for the German troops in private dwellings, in fire stations, barracks, hotels, and houses that are still habitable. Von Kronhelm, Commander-in-Chief, German Military Headquarters, 
Whitehall, London, September 21, 1910. The German field marshal sat alone and reflected. Had he been aware of the true state of affairs, he would certainly have had considerable cause for alarm. True, though Lord Byfield had made such a magnificent stand, considering the weakness of the force at his disposal, and London was occupied, yet England was not conquered. No news had leaked out from Bristol. Indeed, Parliament had taken every precaution that its deliberations were in secret. The truth, however, may be briefly related. On the previous day the House had met at noon in the Colston Hall, a memorable sitting indeed. The Secretary of State for War had, after prayers, risen in the hall and read an official dispatch he had just received from Lord Byfield, giving the news of the last stand made by the British north of Enfield and the utter hopelessness of the situation. It was received by the assembled house in ominous silence. During the past week through that great hall the minister's deep voice, shaken by emotion, had been daily heard as he was compelled to report defeat after defeat of the British arms. Both sides of the house had, after the first few days, been forced to recognize Germany's superiority in numbers, in training, in organization, in fact, in everything appertaining to military power. Von Kronhelm's strategy had been perfect. He knew more of eastern England than the British commander himself, and his marvelous system of spies and advanced agents, Germans who had lived for years in England, had assisted him forward until he had now occupied London, the city declared to be impregnable. Through the whole of September 20, the minister constantly received dispatches from the British Field Marshal and from London itself, yet each telegram communicated to the House seemed more hopeless than its predecessor. The debate, however, proceeded through the afternoon. The opposition were bitterly attacking the government and the Blue Water School for its gross negligence in the past, and demanding to know the whereabouts of the remnant of the British Navy. The First Lord of the Admiralty flatly refused to make any statement. The whereabouts of our Navy at that moment was, he said, a secret which must at all hazards be withheld from our enemy. The Admiralty were not asleep, as the country believed, but were fully alive to the seriousness of the crisis. He urged the House to remain patient, saying that as soon as he dared he would make a statement. This was greeted by loud jeers from the opposition, from whose benches members, one after another, rose and using hard epithets blamed the government for the terrible disaster. The cutting down of our defenses, the meager naval programs, the discouragement of the volunteers and of recruiting, and the disregard of Lord Roberts' scheme in 1906 for universal military training were, they declared, responsible for what had occurred. The government had been culpably negligent, and Mr. Haldane's scheme had been all insufficient. Indeed, it had been nothing short of criminal to mislead the empire into a false sense of security which did not exist. For the past three years Germany, while sapping our industries, had sent spies into our midst and laughed at us for our foolish insular superiority. She had turned her attention from France to ourselves, notwithstanding the Entente Cordiale. She remembered how the much-talked-of Franco-Russian alliance had fallen to pieces and relied upon a similar outcome of the friendship between France and Great Britain. 
The aspect of the house, too, was strange. The speaker in his robes looked out of place in his big uncomfortable chair, and members sat on cane-bottomed chairs instead of their comfortable benches at Westminster. As far as possible, the usual arrangement of the house was adhered to, except that the press were now excluded, official reports being furnished to them at midnight. The clerk's table was a large plain one of stained wood, but upon it was the usual array of dispatches, while the sergeant-at-arms, in his picturesque dress, was still one of the most prominent figures. The lack of committee rooms, of an adequate lobby, and of a refreshment department caused much inconvenience, though a temporary post and telegraph office had been established within the building, and a separate line connected the Prime Minister's room with Downing Street. If the government were denounced in unmeasured terms, its defense was eagerly vigorous. Thus, through that never-to-be-forgotten afternoon, the sitting continued past the dinner hour, on to late in the evening. Time after time the dispatches from London were placed in the hands of the war minister, but contrary to the expectation of the House, he vouchsafed no further statement. It was noticed that just before ten o'clock he consulted in an earnest undertone with the Prime Minister, the First Lord of the Admiralty, and the Home Secretary and that a quarter of an hour later all four went out and were closeted in one of the smaller rooms with other members of the cabinet for nearly half an hour. Then the Secretary of State for War re-entered the house and resumed his seat in silence. A few minutes afterwards Mr. Thomas Askern, member of one of the Metropolitan Boroughs, and a well-known newspaper proprietor who had himself received several private dispatches, rose and received leave to put a question to the war minister. I would like to ask the right honorable, the Secretary of State for War, he said, whether it is not a fact that soon after noon today the enemy, having moved his heavy artillery to certain positions commanding North London, and finding the capital strongly barricaded, proceeded to bombard it. Whether that bombardment, according to the latest dispatches, is not still continuing at this moment whether it is not a fact that enormous damage has already been done to many of the principal buildings of the metropolis, including the government offices at Whitehall, and whether great loss of life has not been occasioned. The question produced the utmost sensation. The House, during the whole afternoon, had been in breathless anxiety as to what was actually happening in London, but the government held the telegraphs and telephone and the only private dispatches that had come to Bristol were the two received by some roundabout route, known only to the ingenious journalists who had dispatched them. Indeed, the dispatches had been conveyed the greater portion of the way by motor-car. A complete silence fell. Every face was turned towards the war minister, who, seated with outstretched legs, was holding a fresh dispatch he had just received. He rose, and in his deep bass voice said, In reply to the honorable member from Southeast Brixton, the statement he makes appears, from information which has just reached me, to be correct. The Germans are, unfortunately, bombarding London. Von Kronhelm, it is reported, is at Hampstead, and the zone of the enemy's artillery reaches, in some cases, as far south as the Thames itself. It is true, as the honorable member asserts, an enormous amount of damage has already been done to various buildings, and there has undoubtedly been great loss of life. 
My latest information is that the non-combatant inhabitants, old persons, women and children, are in flight across the Thames, and that the barricades in the principal roads leading in from the north are held strongly by the armed populace driven back into London. He sat down without further word. A tall, thin, white-moustached man rose at that moment from the opposition side of the house. Colonel Farquhar, late of the Royal Marines, was a well-known military critic and represented West Bude. And this, he said, is the only hope of England? The defense of London by an armed mob, pitted against the most perfectly equipped and armed force in the world? Londoners are patriotic, I grant. They will die fighting for their homes, as every Englishman will when the moment comes. Yet what can we hope when patriotism is ranged against modern military science? There surely is patriotism in the savage Negro races of Central Africa, a love of country perhaps as deep as in the white man's heart. Yet a little strategy, a few maxims, and all defense is quickly at an end. And so it must inevitably be with London. I contend, Mr. Speaker, he went on, that by the ill-advised action of the government from the first hour of their coming into power we now find ourselves conquered. It only remains for them now to make terms of peace as honorable to themselves as the unfortunate circumstances will admit. Let the country itself judge their actions in the light of events of today, and let the blood of the poor, murdered women and children of London be upon their heads. Shame! To resist further is useless. Our military organization is in chaos. Our miserably weak army is defeated and in flight. I declare to this house that we should sue at this very moment for peace, a dishonorable peace though it be. But the bitter truth is too plain. England is conquered. As he sat down among the hear-hears and the loud applause of the opposition, there rose a keen-faced, dark-haired, clean-shaven man of thirty-seven or so. He was Gerald Graham, younger son of an aristocratic house, the Yorkshire Grahams, who sat for northeast Rutland. He was a man of brilliant attainments at Oxford, a splendid orator, a distinguished writer and traveller, whose keen brown eye, little upright figure, quick activity and smart appearance rendered him a born leader of men. For the past five years he had been marked out as a coming man. As a soldier he had seen hard service in the Boer War, being mentioned twice in dispatches. As an explorer he had led a party through the heart of the Congo, and fought his way back to civilization through an unexplored land with valiant bravery that had saved the lives of his companions. He was a man who never sought notoriety. He hated to be lionized in society refused the shoals of cards of invitation which poured in upon him, and stuck to his parliamentary duties, and keeping faith with his constituents to the very letter. As he stood up silent for a moment, gazing around him fearlessly, he presented a striking figure, and in his navy serge suit he possessed the unmistakable cut of the smart, well-groomed Englishman, who was also a man of note. The house always listened to him, for he never spoke without he had something of importance to say, and the instant he was up a silence fell. "'Mr. Speaker,' he said in a clear ringing voice, "'I entirely disagree with my honourable friend the member from West Butte. England is not conquered. She is not beaten. 
the great hall rang with loud and vociferous cheers. London may be invested and bombarded. She may even be sacked, but Englishmen will still fight for their homes and fight valiantly. If we have a demand for indemnity, let us refuse to pay it. Let us civilians, let the civilians in every corner of England, arm themselves and unite to drive out the invader. Loud cheers. I contend, Mr. Speaker, that there are millions of able-bodied men in this country who, if properly organized, will be able to gradually exterminate the enemy. Organization is all that is required. Our vast population will rise against the Germans, and before the tide of popular indignation and desperate resistance the power of the invader must soon be swept away. Do not let us sit calmly here in security and acknowledge that we are beaten. Remember, we have at this moment to uphold the ancient tradition of the British race, the honor of our forefathers who have never been conquered. Shall we acknowledge ourselves conquered in this the twentieth century? No, rose from the hundreds of voices, for the house was now carried away by young Graham's enthusiasm. Then let us organize, he urged. Let us fight on. Let every man who can use a sword or gun come forward, and we will commence hostilities against the Kaiser's forces that shall either result in their total extermination or in the power of England being extinguished. Englishmen will die hard. I myself will, with the consent of this house, head the movement, for I know that in the country we have millions who will follow me and will be equally ready to die for our country if necessary. Let us withdraw this statement that we are conquered. The real earnest fight is now to commence, he shouted, his voice ringing clearly through the hall. Let us bear our part, each one of us. If we organize and unite, we shall drive the Kaiser's hordes into the sea. They shall sue us for peace and be made to pay us an indemnity instead of us paying one to them. I will lead, he shouted, who will follow me? In London, the Lord Mayor's patriotic proclamations were now obliterated by a huge bill bearing the German imperial arms, the text of which told its own grim tale. In the meantime, the news of the fall of London was being circulated by the Germans to every town throughout the kingdom, their dispatches being embellished by lurid descriptions of the appalling losses inflicted upon the English. In Manchester, a great poster, headed by the German imperial arms, was posted up on the town hall, the exchange, and other places, in which von Kronhelm announced the occupation of London, while in Leeds, Bradford, Stockport, and Sheffield similarly worded official announcements were also posted. The press in all towns occupied by the Germans had been suppressed, papers only appearing in order to publish the enemy's orders. Therefore this official intelligence was circulated by proclamation, calculated to impress upon the inhabitants of the country how utterly powerless they were. Notice and advice. To the citizens of London, I address you seriously. We are neighbors, and in time of peace cordial relations have always existed between us. I therefore address you from my heart in the cause of humanity. Germany is at war with England. We have been forced to penetrate into your country. But each human life spared and all property saved we regard as in the interest of both religion and humanity. We are at war, and both sides have fought a loyal fight. 
Our desire is, however, to spare disarmed citizens and the inhabitants of all towns and villages. We maintain a severe discipline, and we wish to have it known that punishment of the severest character will be inflicted upon anyone who are guilty of hostility to the imperial German arms, either open or in secret. To our regret, any incitements, cruelties, or brutalities we must judge with equal severity. I therefore call upon all local mayors, magistrates, clergy, and schoolmasters to urge upon the populace and upon the heads of families to urge upon those under their protection and upon their domestics to refrain from committing any act of hostility whatsoever against my soldiers. All misery avoided is a good work in the eye of our sovereign judge who sees all men. I earnestly urge you to heed this advice, and I trust in you. Take notice. Von Kronhelm, commanding the Imperial German Army. German Military Headquarters, Whitehall, London, September 20, 1910. While von Kronhelm sat in that large somber room in the war office, with his telegraph instrument to Potsdam ever ticking, and the wireless telegraphy constantly in operation, he wondered and still wondered why the English made no response to his demands. He was in London. He had carried out his emperor's instruction to the letter. He had received the imperial thanks, and he held all the gold coin he could discover in London as security. Yet, without some reply from the British government, his position was an insecure one. Even his thousand and one spies who had served him so well ever since he had placed foot upon English soil could tell him nothing. The deliberations of the House of Commons at Bristol were a secret. In Bristol, the hot, fevered night had given place to a gloriously sunny morning with a blue and cloudless sky. Above Lee Woods the lark rose high in the sky, trilling his song, and the bells of Bristol rang out as merrily as they ever did, and above the Colston Halls still floated the royal standard, a sign that the house had not yet adjourned. While von Kronhelm held London, Lord Byfield and the remnant of the British army, who had suffered such defeat in Essex and north of London, had retreated to Chichester and Salisbury, where reorganization was in rapid progress. One division of the defeated troops had encamped at Horsham. The survivors of those who had fought the Battle of Charnwood Forest and had acted so gallantly in the defense of Birmingham were now encamped on the Malvern Hills while the defenders of Manchester were at Shrewsbury. Speaking roughly, therefore, our vanquished troops were massing at four points in an endeavor to make a last attack upon the invader. The commander-in-chief, Lord Byfield, was near Salisbury, and at any hour he knew that the German legions must push westward from London to meet him and to complete the coup. The League of Defenders formed by Gerald Graham and his friends was, however, working independently. The wealthier classes who, driven out of London, were now living in cottages and tents in various parts of Burt's, Wilts, and Hans worked unceasingly on behalf of the League, while into Plymouth, Exmouth, Swanage, Bristol, and Southampton more than one ship had already managed to enter, laden with arms and ammunition of all kinds, sent across by the agents of the League in France. The cargoes were of a very miscellaneous character, from modern maxims to old-fashioned rifles that had seen service in the War of 1870. 
there were hundreds of modern rifles, sporting guns, revolvers, swords, in fact, every weapon imaginable, modern and old-fashioned. These were at once taken charge of by the local branches of the League, and to those men who presented their tickets of identification the arms were served out and practice conducted in the open fields. Three shiploads of rifles were known to have been captured by German warships, one off Stark Point, another a few miles out Padstow, and a third within sight of the Coast Guard at Selby Bill. Two other ships were blown up in the channel by drifting mines. The running of arms across from France and Spain was a very risky proceeding, yet the British skipper is nothing if not patriotic, and every man who crossed the channel on those dangerous errands took his life in his hand. Into Liverpool, Whitehaven, and Milford, weapons were also coming over from Ireland, even though several German cruisers, who had been up to Lamlish to cripple the Glasgow trade, had now come south and were believed still to be in the Irish Sea. End of chapter 7. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.